Well, good morning. You all seem like you are enjoying greeting one another. Excellent. You know, it was um, so fun. The f when I arrived back in April, this church had already done the first Saturate, and it was just so cool to meet all the people that showed up to church from that, and I didn't get to stuff anything, and I didn't get to hand anything out, and so I just thought, hey, this week it's my chance, and it was so fun to go deliver these things and to think to myself, I just invited every single person in this neighborhood to church. Man, I love that. And um, <clears throat> I learned a few things. I made like three trips back to my car, and I realized when you do this, you got to bring a bag so that you can carry more things. You know, there were all kinds of things I learned doing this. that were, It was just so fun and just enjoyed it. Um, this morning, if you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. That's what we're going to be reading this morning. And the title is, If the Lord Wills. And the only comment that I will make about my anniversary is I'm glad that God's will was for me to marry Michelle. I am happy about that. That's been a very good thing in my life. And sometimes I wonder why, but I'm glad that the Lord has blessed me with that. I certainly don't deserve it. Um, so when you think about God's mercy and mercy triumphs, uh, one of the ways that we see that specifically in this passage is that when you think about your life, everything that you have, everything that you can do is a gift that God has given. God in his mercy provides everything that we need. And not only that, but we serve a God that is sovereign, that is in control, and it actually, no matter what goes wrong in your life, you know that God is in control. God's will always happens. And that is, a, I think, one of the most challenging things that we think about. There are, there are concepts in Scripture that when you look at them, there's like two sides of offense, like faith and works. And when we looked at that in James chapter 2, verse 14 and on, the fact that we're saved by faith, but works demonstrate that faith. And so these are things that can initially seem contradictory, but if you really think about them, they fit together just perfectly. But there are other things in life that the Bible teaches that is, are so clear, but no matter how much you think about it on a human level, we cannot figure out how they fit together. And so one of the things as believers, we have this confidence that God is in control and everything that happens, happens according to his will. And yet we could also say from scripture that there are things that are not God's will in the sense that should you sin, should you do something wrong, that is not God's will. And yet as we approach life, even when sin is involved in situations, things outside of our control, or even things that we do, ultimately, looking back over everything, there is nothing that happens outside of God's plan. And we're going to learn how Christians should think about that. And there are some powerful words, powerful words in life, powerful words in our thinking, and that is if, God's will, if God wills. Now, God is sovereign, and I want to just explain what sovereignty is. If you think about sovereignty, it just means it's like a king. And so when you think about sovereignty, I think there are three things that we should think about when it comes to God's sovereignty. Number one, God's sovereignty means he has the right. 
He is the king. He has the right to do whatever he wants. But not only does God have the right to do whatever he wants, he has the power to do whatever he wants. So he has the right, he has the power, and one of the things that the Bible tells us is that he exercises that, and he always does exactly what he wants. And so that's God's sovereign control. Now, if you think about this, the unbelieving world hates the idea of God's sovereign control. They say, no, you are not in charge. I am in charge, right? And we see that in Satan's attitude. When Satan says, I will, I will ascend to heaven. I will be like the most high God. That's what he says to Adam and Eve. God said, don't do this, but if you do this, you can be like God. And so the unbelieving world hates God's sovereign control. But for believers, we love it. It is so comforting to know that even when things go wrong, God intends those things for good in your life. Um, It also reminds us that we depend on God for everything. There's nothing we have and nothing that we can do that God has not allowed us to do that God hasn't given, it, given to us. And unbelievers hate that. Unbelievers want to say, no, I am in control of my future. I decide what happens. And for believers, we are so comforted because we know that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, right? But in Christ, we can accomplish anything. Not anything we want, but anything God has called us to do. We have the, the power to accomplish anything through God's power, through God working in our life. Have you ever met people who um, will end or start say, uh, sentences with, if the Lord wills? Hey, Lord willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Um, I, I, wanna, I want us to consider not just saying those words. I actually think it's helpful sometimes to to, to work those kinds of phrases into our conversation. But life is actually more than just about what you say because you can say words that are empty. And so whether or not you say it, you should think it and you should know it. Okay, so you ready to jump in here to James and read these verses and actually think about them? Okay, two things we're going to see this morning. The first is that we really need to avoid the sin of self-sufficiency. We need to avoid the sin of self-sufficiency, thinking that things come from us and that we're in control. And we need to embrace God's loving sovereignty. One of the great things, and we'll get to this in that point, I'm trying to rush ahead because I love it so much, but the way God's sovereignty reflects itself in God's love and care for his children. So we'll look at that. Now, the attitude that kind of underlines this entire passage is an attitude of humility. One of the things that I was thinking about for the book of James is that throughout the entire thing, you see humility expressed. Like, let's just think about this in the sense of trials. Uh, Trials, when you humbly say, God, whatever you take me through, I know it's for my good. I'm going to submit to it. I'm going to pursue you in it. Temptations to say, hey, uh, Lord, I realize that if I'm tempted, it's not your fault. It's me. I'm the one who's weak. That The humility in both of those things. How, how about in humility in response to God's word? I'm going to read what you say, and whatever you say, I'm going to look into the mirror, and then I'm going to do it. Or chapter 2, favoritism. The humility that says I'm not better than other people. Or the second half of, of James chapter 2, genuine faith. The humility that says, God, if I love you, you'll change me and I'll obey you. Or chapter 3, 
the humility of teachers who just say, man, I better be careful. Uh, I can't control my tongue. I better make sure that I say what God tells me to say. Or the humility that comes in how we talk to other people, how we talk about other people, to say you're made in God's image. I love you. I care about you. I am not going to speak against you. The way humility is expressed in worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. I'm smart and this is all about me. Or I'm going to receive my wisdom from God. Conflicts. The way humility works itself out in conflicts. And then our passage presumptuousness about the future. Let's read this. James 4, 13 through 17. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what, your, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Okay, so let's look at this. James chapter 4, verse 13, avoiding the sin of self-sufficiency. Now, in our culture, um, we focus so much on self-esteem. You can do anything, whatever you want to do. And, and we believe that the solution to our problems is a better self-image. When the reality is that an accurate view of yourself as being made in God's image, that's correct, that's helpful, but a proper understanding that it's actually not about me and how great I am. What makes life work, what makes life a blessing is that God loves me and God cares for me. To see ourselves correctly in relationship to God. And James starts this off. He just says, come now. That gets their attention, but it's like saying, are you kidding me? Have you thought about how ridiculous what you're doing is and what you're saying is. And so it's like he's just pointing out how ridiculous it is. And then it says, come now, you who say. So this is verbal boasting, and it's not actually just about the words. It's about the fact that what did James 3 tell us? That we speak, what's inside of us comes out of our words. That's why we can't control our tongue because we have a heart issue. James is addressing an attitude you're boasting, and it's your attitude, and you're saying, hey, I have all these plans laid out. Now, do you think it's wrong? I think James here is saying, don't plan. Have you ever heard people say, if you, if you uh, aim at nothing, you will hit it every time? Or if you fail to plan, you're actually planning to fail? Does God's word say that it's wrong to plan? No. And we learn from this passage that James is actually not criticizing the fact that they're planning. He's criticizing how they're going about their planning. And so this is what, when he looks at this, he says, let's just look at what these people are planning here. Um, it says, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
So they've picked this time that they're going to go. They're going to go today or tomorrow, and they, they know the exact location that they're going, so they know when they're leaving, and they know that they're going to go to a specific location, and they've picked an amount of time. They're, they're saying, for a whole year, we're going to conduct in business. And I'll bet these people are good businessmen. I'll bet they've done it plenty of times before. This is not their first time around. And they're just saying, hey, I've done this a bunch of times, and it always works out for me. I know what I'm doing. Have you ever met anybody who's very confident, who just feels like, hey, I can do whatever I want to do. I've done this a million times. I'm good at what I do. I mean, people that are the top of their game. And James is talking here to believers. Now, there's, there's the unbelieving world that we can think about, and we will. But James is talking about believers who, in their plans, they do it with no thought of God. We're going to trade, and we're going to make a profit the thing that's wrong here is that in none of this are they considering God's plans, God's purpose. They're only thinking about what do I want to do and I will bring this about. And we know that because if you look at verse 16, it says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, if these were people that were planning properly with a proper view of God, he would not have labeled it as boasting and arrogance. So it's not planning that's wrong. It's arrogant planning. So just think about this. As you get up and as you go through your day and as you plan different elements of your life, and this could be what you're doing in work. It could be what you're doing in your family. It could be any category. Um, the question that I would ask you is, do you pray about it? It's one of the things that I was thinking about in ministry and in church, it's like we're about God's work. But anybody who approaches anything that they're doing in church or in ministry just without prayer, without saying, God, I need your help. Lord, will you bring fruit to this? If you don't pray in your life, if you don't pray about the things that you're doing, that is a signal to you that you are pro approaching life in an arrogant way. Because the truth is, you can do nothing without God's help. Now, I was thinking about this as it relates to the unbelieving world. A lot of times, we can think about Christianity and we can feel like, okay, well, if you're a Christian, then you're obligated to do what God says. You're obligated to obey God. You should do all the things that God, you know, obey all God's commands. If you're not a Christian, well, we can't expect unbelievers to live like believers. And to some degree, that's true, that we don't expect unbelievers to live like believers. But did you know that there is no less obligation before God for an unbeliever to live in submission, dependence, to have a godly attitude, to see God for who he is, to see themselves for who they are? Before God, there is no less accountability for a person who's an unbeliever or for a believer. In fact... In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, and I'll put this on the screen, you know, it's actually the reason for God's wrath that he pours out on mankind. Look at this. It says, Romans 1:18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, and it the three dots there is that God put a knowledge of himself inside every single person. Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God 
or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You think about this. Um, When people stand in the final judgment and God pours out his wrath on them, it's going to be because when they woke up in the morning, they didn't say, God, thank you for giving me breath. Thank you for giving me life. Lord, I, I have a house. Thank you for giving me a house. I have a mind that's able to work and I can go to work and I can think and, and I have a body that works and I can build things and I can make things. God, thank you. Uh, God, the sun came out today and it, and it warmed me. Everything I have, I, I got from you. Thank you. And God actually says he will pour out his wrath on unbelievers because when they wake up in the morning, they get up and they think they did it. Have you ever thought about how terrible it is to take credit for what somebody else does? It's almost like, you know, some dad says to his kid, hey, I love you. I'm going to buy you a car. I'm going to give you some money. And this kid takes money that he didn't earn, and he goes out and buys this great car. And then he comes home with it, and he's talking to his friends. I am so good with money. Look what I did. Look at the deal I negotiated on this car. Man, this is my car. And his dad comes out. Oh, nice car. Hey, dad, go away. I'm talking, about my, I'm talking about my car I just bought. Without thinking about the fact, no, actually, you didn't buy the car. The dad bought the car. And that's the way so many people live their life. They receive things from God, and they take credit for it. Um, no prayer. You don't see that in this. You don't see a group of people who are seeking God's will. They're not saying, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? They're not seeking that. They're just saying, this is what I want. This is what I will do. Now, James is teaching this passage to a bunch of people who knew the Old Testament very well. They'd spent their whole life reading it and understanding it. Can you think of any passages in the Old Testament, any stories that show that nobody can do anything, that God is behind everything. Uh, we'll refer to a few of those, but one of my favorites is King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 4, and I want to look at a passage about King Nebuchadnezzar because it's such a great story. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Israel was uh, a wicked nation, and, and they would honor God at some times, and then other times they would wander away. And one of the things that God does is he raises up these pagan nations. And he says, okay, Israel, you are being disobedient, and so I'm going to raise up a pagan nation to come torment you. So that, that happened with Nebuchadnezzar. He was a divine spanker for Israel. Now, here, here's the reason that God used unbelieving nations for this is because it doesn't matter how much Israel sins. No person who loves God says, I'm going to attack your children. I'm going to harm your children. Nobody would do that. The only people who would attack Israel, whether they were honoring God or not honoring God, are people who had no thought of God. And so God says, I'm going to raise up a pagan nation. I'm going to punish you with that nation. And then when I'm done punishing you, I'm going to punish that nation for, doing, for hurting you. Like that's a, did you, do you know that's a story in the Old Testament? In fact, God tells a king about Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I'm going to punish you, and after I've punished you enough, I'm bringing you back to Israel. So when I send Nebuchadnezzar, I'm just telling you right now, you will lose if you fight him, so don't fight him. If you don't fight him, you're going to live. 
But if you do fight him, that's not going to be good. So what this king does is he does not listen to God, does not listen to the prophet. He says, no, I'm going to fight Nebuchadnezzar. That was a bad choice. So what Nebuchadnezzar does is he lines up this kid's sons before him, and then he hacks them all to death with a sword, and then he pokes out this king's eyes. And he just says, you're going to watch all your kids die. It's going to be the last thing you ever see because he didn't submit to God. And so this is the king that God has raised up, Nebuchadnezzar, and it fits into God's plan. And Nebuchadnezzar, we find out, if you, if, as you look at Daniel chapter 4, so if you have your phones, flip over there, or your Bibles, and it says this in Daniel chapter 4, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people's nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. This great testimony in chapter 4 is this wicked king that God uses, and then God shows himself to Nebuchadnezzar. I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved. I believe God saved Nebuchadnezzar. And he did that through the ministry of Daniel. And so now Nebuchadnezzar, after seeing God's hand in his life, says, I want to tell you this story. So I'll just rush through it, and then we'll look at a few more verses. But basically what happens is he's prospering. He is the most mighty king. Everything he does is successful. His problem is that he thinks it's from him. He thinks it's his talent. And so he's doing really well, and God gives him a dream where he sees this big tree that's feeding everything, this wonderful tree, and then it gets chopped down, and they leave a little stump. And he said, hey, somebody's going to lose their mind and turn into an animal. So, so the king's like bewildered. He doesn't know what to do. He calls Daniel, and he says, can you interpret this dream? And Daniel explains Nebuchadnezzar, this is a dream about you, and God is talking about you and your attitude. And so verse 25 of chapter 4, he says, you're going to be punished until you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he wishes. We're not going to talk about this, but I want to just throw something into your mind. Have you ever thought about that how the richest people in the world sometimes are unbelievers? Have you ever wondered why? Some of the most successful people, some people who no matter what they touch, it turns to gold and they don't even know the Lord. Nobody is rich apart from God giving them what they have. Bill Gates has every dollar that he has because God gave it to him. And sometimes we wonder why, and I just think, it's God working out his plans. And he could say, it doesn't matter how much you have, you'll have nothing. And you find out people that are so successful and then they end their life when, after they've achieved all their goals. And then you'll see other people who have nothing and God meets every need. And so that's just God saying, I work however I decide to work and you think you have happiness in that, I'll give it to you, you're still not gonna be happy. And even if you think you are, one day when you leave this world, you're gonna find out that things were different. But nobody has anything that God didn't give them. And that's what he says here in verse, God gives whatever he wishes to whomever he will. Verse 26, and it was commanded to leave the stump, the root of the tree, and your kingdom will be confirmed to you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So he tells Nebuchadnezzar, you're gonna get your kingdom back when you realize who's in charge. 
And so then he goes on. Daniel says, King, you should repent. And God gives him a year to repent. Let's read what happens here. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is this not the great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? That was a bad thing to say. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Right then God just says to him, you just lost your kingdom. And you will be driven among the men and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field and you will be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time will pass over you. So for seven years until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he wishes. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from the men, and he ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. So for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar is crawling around out in a field, eating grass and getting rained on, and everybody probably went by the road and go, wow, that was a really awesome king. Check him out. And, and that happened for seven years. And then it goes on, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation and then this is something for us to really think about what he says here next. Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. See, we live in a culture where sometimes, don't you feel pressure against Christianity, against honoring the Lord? Sometimes you feel like the world is against you. And you can feel like everybody's against me. And oh, if we took a vote, Christianity would lose. You know, the thing we need to recognize is that God is not in heaven hoping people will like him. He's not thinking, boy, I, I hope somebody will agree with me. I hope somebody will vote on my side. God does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And he just says, and all the inhabitants of the earth, well, they're accounted as nothing. He does according to his will amongst the hosts of the heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have you ever heard people that question God that say, why are you doing this? Who do you think you are? God should not be doing that. Nobody says to God, what have you done? So this is the unbelieving world. Do you know who James is talking to? He's talking to believers have you ever struggled with God's sovereignty? Have you ever struggled with God's will? Have you ever looked at things in life and said, hey, this isn't fair, it shouldn't be this way? See, as believers, we shouldn't struggle like that. So verse 36, it goes on and it says, at the same time my, my reason returned to me for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought after me and I was established in my kingdom. So God gives it back to him when he humbles himself before God. 
Now, have you ever thought about how brutal Old Testament kingdoms were? You know how it's like you get some king, and he'd actually just go kill all his brothers so that none of them could become king? And just how people would kill their brothers. You know, we think about in history, the men who have killed their wives. It's like anybody who threatens their power, they just kill him. Think about what an amazing leader Nebuchadnezzar was, that he loses his mind, and the kingdom sits around waiting for him to come back. He's wandering for seven years like a cow, and the moment he gets his sanity, they're like, hey, come on, will you please be our king again? Like, that didn't happen in the Old Testament period. That didn't happen in ancient kingdoms. And the reason it happened is because God decided it would happen, but it's also part of what he used is what a great leader Nebuchadnezzar was. But he was a great leader because God made him a great leader, not because it came from himself. And so when you look at this passage, um, what you see is you see these people are arrogantly taking credit for what God has done. Now think about that in your life. As you make plans and as you think about things, do you realize that the only reason you can think is that God gave you a mind? The only reason you have the ability to do anything is because God gave that to you? And every time you accomplish something, do you say, God, thank you? Thank you for letting me have this. Think, what's pride, right? Pride is I'm better than you. I'm smarter than you. How about no? God decided to give you a higher IQ than he decided to give this person. And God can honor himself in your life and also honor himself in the life of the person who has a lower IQ. You know, sometimes we look at our talents and abilities, we feel better about ourselves instead of just going, no. God is working everywhere, and God doesn't depend on us. He gives us what we have and what we need. And so you also see here that they have no heavenly mind. They're not saying, Lord, what do you want from my life? They're saying, we're going to go make a profit. They, they had a single focus. And so James clarifies this. You know, God really is in control of everything, and he can use anybody to accomplish his will. That's one of the things we think about in, in the unbelieving world. Do you ever hear the story about the lady who needed groceries? I heard this story, and I love it. I'm going to tell it to you. There was this old lady who would come out every morning on her steps in her front porch. She'd raise her arms to the sky and say, praise the Lord. Well, one day an atheist moved into the house next door, and over time he just became irritated and every morning, he would step out into his front porch, and he would yell after this lady, there is no God. And um, this lady would shout, praise the Lord. And one day, she goes out, and she says, praise the Lord. I have no food, and I'm hungry. And the next morning, she stepped onto her porch, and there were two huge bags of, huge bags of groceries. And um, she says, praise the Lord. He's given me groceries. And the, this atheist jumps out and he says, no, it was not the Lord. There is no God. I bought those groceries. And the little old lady throws her arms into the air and she says, praise the Lord. He's provided me with groceries and he made the devil pay for them. <laughs> That's God. He accomplishes anything, even when people rebel against God, their rebellion fits into his plans. That's how amazing God's sovereignty is. That's something we'll never fully be able to understand. So when we look at this, he, he tells them, he lays a foundation for the right attitude. Look at verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
You don't even know about your tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then disappears. It vanishes away. Now, when you consider that God is eternal, he's around forever. We are not around forever. We are temporary. If you thought about Psalm 90, as Moses talks about life, this is what he says. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or you ever had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. God's eternal. Men are temporary. He goes on and he says this in, in verse 10. He says, the years of our life are 70 or even if by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble, and soon they are gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and the wrath according to the fear due you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know, even if you live a long life, it is a, it's, it's a vapor. And we need to consider and have reverence for God. And we need to live a life. We need to number our days. We need to use our days carefully for his kingdom and for his purpose. So two things just to consider on this point. We'll move to the next. When you're self-sufficient, you are foolish. You know, the Bible says that God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When you think that you accomplish things by your talent, you are being foolish and even when you achieve things, you will lose. Um, God will be opposed to you in your life. And so even when you win, you lose. It's a terrible thing to be self-sufficient. The other thing is this. Did you know that self-sufficiency leads to insecurity and fear? You know, we think that the solution to people's insecurity and the solution to their fear is to say, no, you're good, you're powerful, you're smart, you can achieve anything. If you work hard at it, it's, oh, it's in you, you are so strong. That is actually not true. That leads to insecurity and fear. The reality is we can't do anything. We are not in control of the future. We can work super hard and things beyond our control can just take them away. There is nothing that you have that you couldn't lose. So even when you get something, it's a moment from being gone. And so when you're self-sufficient and you look at yourself and you think, oh, man, I can do this, when you think about that, that leads to insecurity and fear. But when you realize, I have nothing but what God gives me, and if I'm honoring him and loving him and serving him, how could I lose anything? What does God say in Romans 8, 28? I'll work all things together for your good. God loves us and he cares about us. And so realizing that I'm not self-sufficient, I'm dependent on God. Now that brings confidence, security. Even if something goes wrong, you're not afraid of it because you just say, hey, if I lose everything, God's going to bless me in the midst of this loss. Whatever I have, God gave me and he could take it away. He can give it back. I have no fear about the future because I know in whose hand I'm in. And so let's look at the second point here that we see here. We need to embrace God's loving sovereignty as we approach life. We need to have an attitude of if the Lord wills. Make no mistake, God is in control of everything. 
Look what it says here in James 4.15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord lives, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this and that. Not only what we accomplish, but whether or not we live is in God's hands. And so we just say, hey, God, uh, not what will I do next year, but if I wake up in the morning, that was according to your will. And whatever it is that I do or don't do is according to your will. Now, that's an attitude of the heart. It is a realistic acknowledgement of our dependence on God. See, we need to seek God's will if the Lord wills. That's seeking. God, I want what you want. I'm going to bring you into my plans. So it's, it's seeking God's will. It's a submission to God's will. And it's... It, so that's, that's what James is telling us to do here. We need to embrace God's purpose. Matthew 6, seek first his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So we're seeking God's kingdom. We're seeking God's righteousness. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. You know, you think about Joseph in Egypt, right? He gets sold into slavery and no matter where he goes, he's successful. Everything that goes wrong in Joseph's life, to some degree, goes right. So he gets, goes into Potiphar's house. Everything he touches turns to gold. And Potiphar just says, hey, if you're managing my investments, they do well. Joseph, you're in charge of everything in my house. And he gave it no thought. And then Joseph gets thrown into prison. And what does the, the leader of the prison do? Everything Joseph touches turns to gold. And he says, okay, Joseph, you're in charge of, you know, the prisoner was running the prison. And everything he touched was successful because God was with him. God was blessing him. Even when things went wrong, they went right. And do you remember how Joseph looks at that at the end of his life? where he says to his brothers, you meant this for evil. Now I want you to notice something in that statement that Joseph makes. Joseph doesn't say you meant this for evil and God used it for good. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says you meant this for evil. God meant this for good. See, they were responsible for sinning against Joseph, but God's sovereignty was in that. And God blessed him all the way through it, saves Israel through it. And we need to be people that are seeking and submitting to God's will. If we live and if we do this or that, as it is in your arrogance, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. Now think about this. Jesus in his life, the God of the universe, comes to this earth, lives a perfect life, and says, I'm here only to do God's will. Should you and I not seek God's will in our life? You read all through the, the epistles and the book of Acts where every time Paul says, hey, I'm planning to go there if God wills. He realizes that his purpose is to be about God's will, but that he is also subject to God's will. So he seeks God's will, but he's also subject to God's will. You see both of those things. And this, by the way, is something that we even put in our evangelism. See, a lot of times we're, we hinder, we, we're afraid of telling people these things because we're afraid that they might not like it. When the Apostle Paul evangelizes, do you know that's the foundation of what he tells people in his evangelism messages? God's in charge, not you. 
Uh, this is Acts chapter 17 where Paul's preaching to, to um, some folks and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Have you ever heard people uh, try to share the gospel and they're afraid to say what God says about himself. They're afraid they might offend somebody. They have a hard time defending some of God's actions. You know, the Apostle Paul never says, oh man, I, I hope you'll like Jesus. He presents God as though he's the king of the universe as he is. And then look at this. Have you thought about this? And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, so God decided when they would live and the boundaries of their dwelling places. See, I moved to Mission Viejo. I thought it was because I chose to be there, but God decided I was going to be in that neighborhood. You ever think about even where you live, God decides even that? Whoever knows the right thing and doesn't do it to him, it's sin. I, I want to just share with you one of the places that God talks about his sovereignty and just think about the detail of God's sovereignty here. Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? So not even a bird dies apart from God's will. And how does God use this in this, or how does Jesus use this in his presentation? This is what he says. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God not only knows how many hairs you have, he also decides how many hairs you'll have. But, but he says, even the hairs of your head are numbers. And what does it say here in verse 31? Fear not, therefore you, have more, you are of more value than many sorrows. God's sovereignty is something that protects us, comforts us. We can face life with confidence because we know that God loves us. So my encouragement for all of us, let's not take credit for what God is doing. And let's be people that are seeking God's will and also realizing that we're subject to God's will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness, for the way that you love us, for the way that you care about us. Lord, in some ways it is not a surprise, though it is foolish. It is not a surprise when we see unbelievers uh, priding themselves in what they can do, what they have achieved, knowing that even what they have they got from you. Lord, as believers... Help us not to do that. Help us not to approach life as though we are the ones who are accomplishing things. Lord, help us to approach life in submission to you, with love for you, knowing that you are the one who brings success to whatever we do in your name. Amen.